In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, God willing, today we're going to start studying a new book. We had finished the book of Genesis, uh, which is 50 chapters. Uh, and then we moved to the New Testament, and we finished the book of 2 Corinthians um, last time. And so, God willing, today we're going to continue where we left off from the book of Genesis, which is the book of Exodus. So, um, first I'll give you like a little... Um, kind of background about the book. So the first five books of the Old Testament are called what? You know? The books of the law, yes, has another fancy name. The Pentateuch, right? The Pentateuch, Penta as in five, right? So it's it's the, f the five books which were written by Moses, which are the books of the law. Can you name them? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, good. Um, so by the Exodus is like a direct continuation of Genesis, right? So um, by the end of the book of Genesis, right, what had happened? The, the Israelites, which are essentially Jacob and his sons and their families, they had come to Egypt. We know that Joseph was already in Egypt, um, and he's the one who was... Um, like feeding the world essentially with the surplus of the food that was in Egypt and that eventually uh, Jacob died in Egypt, Joseph died in Egypt um, and that whole generation died, okay? And at the time, the Pharaoh who was there um, respected Joseph very much because um, Joseph was the one who was able to interpret his dream and Joseph was the one that he chose in order to manage the food supply of Egypt and so for very many years, Joseph was serving Pharaoh, um, and, and he was like the second in, in command in, in Egypt. So the Pharaoh at the time of Joseph was very amenable to the Hebrews, and actually he gave them a special place to live in Egypt, right, called Goshen. This is the place where they lived. And so um, at the time when Jacob died and Joseph died and all this, like everything was going great for the Israelites who are now living in Egypt, okay? But now in the book of Exodus... Okay, hundreds of years have passed, right? About 400 years have passed. The Israelites have increased in number greatly, like into the millions at this point, right? Um, and the Pharaoh that was there at the time, he was not sympathetic at all or caring about um, the Hebrews, but actually he saw them as a threat because they had increased so much in number. And so they were worried, right, that they're going to somehow revolt or have a rebellion and take over, you know, so... They, they, were, they were seeing them as a threat, and so he began to treat them like slaves, essentially. And he would have them to be building all of the things they need to build and do everything like in slave labor, and he would treat them very poorly. Um, the date of the Exodus um, most likely was around the year 1447 B.C., um, somewhere around there. Um, from a symbolic perspective, okay, in the book of Genesis we see like the love of God proclaimed to mankind through the creation, right? Like God is showing his love for mankind in the creation, in the creation of um, everything in the world and, and the creation of Adam and Eve. But we also see the rebellion of men against God who turned their backs on him. And yet God remained faithful to the people all throughout. And so in the book of Exodus, we see like the continuation of the love of God that was first manifested uh, in, in Genesis. We see it here again in how God is caring so much for his people who are now suffering under slavery in Egypt and how God is going to bring them out, right? This is why it's called Exodus, right? Exodus because 
the, the exodus is the exodus of the people who are leaving Egypt to come out of Egypt, okay? Um, one other thing to keep in mind about Exodus. Exodus and, and all the events that are happening were all part of God's plan. E- even, even like the, the mistreatment of the Israelites and all that stuff, right? So when the famine happened, right, 400 years earlier, this is what brought uh, Jacob and his family to Egypt. And it became for them like a safe haven. It became for them a place where they could dwell in like a permanent place instead of living nomadically like they were before. And they had plenty of food. They had plenty of land. They had all these things. And so it is through that that the people began to grow and grow and multiply and multiply in, into from just being like essentially one big family to being a nation. Okay, And now when God deemed it time for them to move out of Egypt and essentially to go and to live independently on their own as their own nation and have their own place to live. So God is now allowing this to happen, everything that is happening to them, which is the kind of the mistreatment from Pharaoh to them, and how God is going to use that to be like the driving force and the motivation for them to leave behind their entire country that they've known. I mean, think about it like, you know, we maybe we know the story well, right? But think about it from like our perspective. Like let's say we are so persecuted here in America that we decide that as a Coptic church, all of us, we are going to travel on foot to another country and establish a new settlement there. And everything that you had, you leave behind, right? And everything that you know, you leave behind. And even though you're looking forward to something new and better, right? Well, at the same time, this is high risk, right? You're leaving behind a lot of things that you knew. And this is one of the big issues that the Israelites had is that even though they were, um, they were of course upset with their conditions that they had to live and they were upset at the fact that they were slaves and all that, but at the same time, they felt like they were taken care of. They had a place to live, they had food to eat, and they didn't want, it wasn't so easy for them to leave, which is why after they left, every time they experienced any kind of hardship, um, after they left Egypt, they're always like remembering Egypt, like, oh, we wish we hadn't left Egypt, we wish we could go back again. Um, so here we see the manifestation of God's love in him caring for them even while they are in Egypt and leading them out again to the final place where he wants them to be, which is the land of Israel. Um, as far as like the genre of the book, although the book um, has many historic events, right, but it is not a history book, right? And that's one thing that's true about the Bible. The Bible has, has references to many events that are historic, many events that we might read about in a history book. But the purpose of why these events are documented in uh, the Bible is not to be exhaustive and historical. It is not to teach all the details of history, right? It is to, it is to support the theme, which is the message of love and salvation from God to humanity, right? So here, the, the amount of history that is being presented, while all of it is true, it is not intended to be exhaustive history, but to show the love of God and how God brought them out of bondage and to make them into a new people. This is a parallel, and, and actually the whole book of Exodus is a parallel to the spiritual life. It's a parallel to our spiritual life. Um, the, the, the way that <coughs> um, God liberates us from the bondage of sin, the way that he makes us to be new creations, the way that he frees us from the works of darkness, this is essentially what is happening in the book of Exodus, okay? From a spiritual perspective, Pharaoh represents Satan. 
And Egypt represents like his dominion, like Hades. So they have the Israelites who are enslaved in the dominion of evil, in the dominion of the devil, right? Enslaved by him. And God frees them from this dominion under the bondage of Satan. He frees them by taking them through the Red Sea. What does the Red Sea represent? Hmm? Not Christ, but something else related to water. Oh. Baptism. Okay. Right? He takes them through the waters of the Red Sea as though it is through baptism. Okay? And eventually leading them to the promised land. Right? Just as from a spiritual perspective, God frees us from the bondage of sin. He allows us to become his children through baptism, and he leads us to our heavenly home, right? The promised land, the spiritual promised land, okay? <coughs> what is the relation to the New Testament? So, um, as we said, Israel got, gets baptized into the, through the Red Sea, okay? Um, uh, also, when... Uh, we see in the New Testament how the Lord Christ, he spends 40 days in the wilderness, right, uh, f fasting before he begins his ministry. And this is as though, like, he was calling to mind the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, okay, um, at the beginning, right, before they entered into the promised land. Um, and also, there's 40 days that were spent by the prophet Moses on Mount Sinai when he re received the Ten Commandments, okay, um, and 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 um, so so the this is like uh, Moses was waiting for these forty days to receive the law, okay, and he presented it to the children of Israel after it was revealed to him on Mount Sinai, right? So also the Lord Christ, so Moses is like a symbol of Christ. Also the Lord Christ, right, who is the Word of God, he presented uh, his law to us on Mount Sinai, also, which is like in the Sermon on the Mount. So when Christ is beginning his ministry and he begins by presenting himself and presenting his law, his commandments and his sermons and his teaching to the people after he spends 40 days in the wilderness. So also just as Moses was on the mountain for 40 days before receiving um, the word of God. OK, so the, the, the covenant uh, of Sinai, which is the covenant when uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments, um, it has this symbol in the new covenant, the New Testament. Um, also, in this book, we see that the people of God are transformed. There's a lot of transformation that happens in this book. The way that the people entered Egypt, there were like 75 people. And, and the way that they leave Egypt, millions of people. Okay. Also, they entered like um, not, they were not um, a nation, right? They were a family, but they were not a nation. They didn't yet have a national identity when they entered into Egypt. But when they leave Egypt, God has made them into a nation. They are a, they're a mighty nation. They are not just a family, right? They're not just small in number. Also, you see actually a lot of transformation in the life of Moses. And actually, this is one of my most favorite um, things to look at um, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, actually, um, is the changes that happened to Moses, right? And we'll kind of trace through what are all the kind of personality traits of Moses and how did he be start and, and what happened to him and how did he end up? And there is a big transformation that happens in his life as well. So this book is, 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 has so much focus on transformation and liberation and change, okay? And the same is true with us as believers, right? We are also going through this process of change. We are also going through this process of liberation. 
And this is what we want to emphasize. When we study any book in the Bible, and, and, and you know, um, here specifically in the book of Exodus, we want to think of this, like, how, what, what can we learn from this that applies to us spiritually today in terms of change and transformation? Also, another very important event that happens in the book of Exodus is the receiving of the Ten Commandments, and also Moses receives a lot of other very important commandments um, related to the tabernacle and other things, okay? Um, but here in Exodus 20, one of the most famous books, uh, famous chapters in the book of Exodus is when Moses received the Ten Commandments, okay? So that's just kind of a, uh, a background summary of the book. So we'll start now with chapter 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So here he's listing all of the tribes of Israel, which are the sons of Jacob. At this point, they're not yet tribes, right? Right, they become tribes later when when the nation is 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 uh, uh, like is is established. Each one of the sons of Jacob becomes becomes a separate tribe. So this is like the family that entered into Egypt. And when you count Joseph and when you count his sons that are already in Egypt, right, the total number of Israel uh, of Israelites were between seventy and seventy-five, depending on how you count it. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Right? So we said Israelites spent 400 years in Egypt since the time of Joseph. They increased in number. Okay? And, and um, one other kind of symbol we can speak about here. So if, if for those who remember from the book of Genesis, we spoke about how Joseph is a symbol of Christ. Right? Just as Christ is the Savior. Right? Joseph also saved the people at the time because of his wise management of all of the food in the world. So he, so he was able to um, preserve the people throughout the famine, right? And there were many other examples we gave. So Joseph is a symbol of Christ. So now at the time when Joseph died, it was a time of great fruitfulness for his people. Just as when the Lord Christ died for us, it was the establishment of the church, right? It was, it was a time of fruitfulness for the believers all throughout the world much more actually than when the Lord was alive. Like if you would count how many, how many believers there were in the, in the Lord at the time when the Lord was alive, and then compare that to how many there were after he died, right? The number of Christians multiplied dramatically, right? After the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So here also we see in the sense that when Joseph died, there was this period of growth and fruitfulness for the people. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, right? So remember the, the previous pharaoh um, at the time of Joseph, he, he knew Joseph, he understood Joseph, he knew what Joseph did, and he loved him, right? And so here, now there is a new pharaoh who is uh, coming into power, and he doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know the history, right? He doesn't know maybe how all these people came to be here, and he certainly didn't appreciate them. He didn't appreciate how is it that they came to be here and who they were. So while, while the Pharaoh at the time of Joseph, he was very much caring for the Israelites and preserving and protecting them and providing for their needs. So now this Pharaoh here, he doesn't see it this way at all. He just sees that there is like these foreign people that are living in our country and they're multiplying dramatically and he sees them as a threat 
and he wants to do something about it. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. What, what, is, he, what is he afraid of happening? They're going to have a coup, and they're going to uh, ally themselves with the enemy, like a foreign nation, right? Does that sound familiar? This is actually what, for so long, the governments of Egypt believed about the Copts. They always believed that the Copts were going to ally themselves with some foreign nation, right? And then have some kind of a coup or have some kind of, you know, like liberation or rebellion um, in Egypt. Of course, that was never the case. But this is what he was worried about. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So they built these cities as a way for the Hebrews to be efficient in their work. So the Hebrews, they would go and they would get like the supplies that they needed to work. And they would each of them would have like a quota of work that they would have to do every day. They would give them the supplies, then they would go do the work, and they had to show that they did a certain amount of work every day. And again, it, it was slave labor. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Right. So even though they were uh, afflicting them, even though they were punishing them, even though they treated them harshly, and yet they kept growing and growing and growing in number. And so they were really afraid of what it is that they were going to do. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Okay. Um, so one question we can ask is, why is it that God would allow all of this to happen to his children? You know, we talk about how God is loving and God is protecting his children. And this is something from the very beginning that God had um, chosen these people to be his people. Why is it that God is allowing them to endure such difficult hardship? not really that it's God's nature, but it's actually this is the nature of this world. This world is not meant to be comforting. Like it's uh, we're supposed to have tribulations this world in this world. So definitely the world has a lot of corruption and problems and suffering in it, and they are enduring that, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the the sins of Pharaoh, right? The the vulnerability of Pharaoh, the weaknesses of Pharaoh. They are you know bearing the brunt of it, and they're having to deal with the consequence of it. That's true. But in but w in hmm? the same way, like the. Um, they're not supposed to be in Egypt. They're supposed to be in uh, in Canaan. So, so the, yeah, that is where God wants them to be. Yeah. But but it's but He's like preparing them for that, right? So so and that's a that's 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 the right idea. So with the with the idea in mind of God wants these people to be in Canaan. Okay, why would God allow His children to be afflicted like this? Okay, that's one reason. Right. One of the reasons that God allows us to suffer is to make them rely on God more. 
And we spoke about this when we were studying 2 Corinthians when St. Paul was see, say, saying about how God gave him this thorn in his side, right? The more that he felt weakness, the more he would turn to God. The more he felt weakness, the more he would be humbled and feel like all of the success of his ministry was not because of his own talents, but because of the work of God in him, right? So, so definitely for them to draw closer to God and seeking his help, that's one reason God allows suffering. What's another reason that God is allowing his children to go through this? That when they become a nation, they would they themselves would not inflict it. They're not supposed to inflict it on others. What they what they had what they had tasted. Okay, so that's a good point, right? So when 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 we are mistreated and we see that someone is mistreating us, maybe we're going to be even more careful not to do that to somebody else because we know that we have suffered in a certain way because of somebody. Yes. Maybe it'll help them to have mercy on others because they themselves have experienced what it's like being a slave. Okay. Is it so that when God shows them mercy, because like later on, they, they like they look back and they're like, oh, I mean, in Egypt, we had so much food and we were living prosperously. Um, is it so that, I mean, I guess so that that wouldn't have happened, but it happened anyway, but kind of of like so that they understand the difference between what is bad and what is good? Yeah. So you're on the right track, right? So what would it, so again, what is the goal? The goal is that the Israelites realize the promise of the covenant which that they would become a mighty nation okay the nation of god the nation through which the messiah would come the nation that worships god and reveres god if they remained in egypt and every desire of theirs was catered for and they had everything that they needed and they lived in luxury would they would that ever happen no. like would they ever have chosen with their own to leave like if all it was, was God said, now it's time to go, right? How much more difficult would it have been to convince these people who had everything that now it's the time to go and establish the nation of Israel? But in order to make them feel that this place had nothing for them, that this place was worthless to them, that they wanted to flee this place as fast as they could, and that even though they had all kinds of fears and uncertainties about the future and what is it that God was preparing for them and they were afraid of the desert and they were afraid of enemies and they were afraid of hunger and they were afraid of thirst and they were afraid of all these things and yet God had to make it so that the place where they were now was so intolerable that they would be willing to face all of those fears and uncertainties and doubts because anything is better than this. Okay? So in order for God to really fulfill his promise maybe because of our lack of faith, he has to give us motivation, okay? And sometimes you have positive motivation and sometimes you have negative motivation. The positive motivation is when God is providing something that's so amazing that we just want to run to it. Like it looks so good that we just want to run to it. Negative motivation is when he makes what we currently have so bad that we just want to run from it, right? And usually God offers both. When God is trying to attract people to the promised land, he's, you know, he says, this is a land of milk and honey. Like, this is a beautiful land. This is a wonderful land. And that I will be with you, and I will conquer all your enemies for you. And he gives us all these promises and telling to encourage them in order to go forward, right, even though they're afraid. 
And at the same time, he makes it so difficult for them to remain in Egypt to where it is not nearly as good as it was at the beginning. And it's not nearly as good as what God is promising them, you know, that they would have in the future. So sometimes when God makes our situation so difficult, it's because God wants us to move. And maybe that movement means different things. It doesn't mean physical movement necessarily. He wants us to move. He wants us to change something. He wants us to try something new. He prom makes a promise that maybe for us is difficult to understand or accept, but how is it that really we accept it? We need a push. And one of the ways that God pushes is he makes what we currently have not nearly as attractive as it used to be. Okay? Um, so this is one reason, one of the main reasons, actually, that God allows them to go through all this suffering, right? So that they would not be so attached to Egypt and it was a struggle even with this you know like John you were saying like even while they were wandering in the wilderness they were like oh we wish we would be back in Egypt where we had the pots of meat that we could eat instead of having to eat this manna you know even with all of the slavery right they didn't remember the slavery they remembered the pots of meat they remembered how all these luxury items that they had so much better and they forgot even then right so we as human beings need a lot of motivation to do something Another reason that God would allow them to suffer is because this would be a source of unification for them. Whenever we feel that we have a common enemy, we naturally unite together in order to overcome that enemy. Okay? And that enemy doesn't even have to be a person. You know? Like you could have like the pandemic is an enemy. And you have people who are uniting together to fight it. It brings a kind of, or it's supposed to bring, a kind of unity in some, at least with some people, <laughs> okay? Um, like, like if, 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 you had, if you were like with strangers that you've never met before inside of a building and then suddenly there are terrorists that are surrounding the building and you have to decide what to do to escape or how to like free yourself or how to overcome this, suddenly these strangers are going to become your friends, right? Like you start to work together. You start to, 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 to feel a sense of unity and bond with these people simply because you have a common enemy. And so we in the church, we one of the, the reasons why we should be unified together is because we do have indeed a common enemy. We have, we, are so, we have so much in common, right? Maybe we look different and we have different careers and jobs and we live in different places. And maybe we even we come from different countries and different languages. But in the end, the thing that is in common is that we are all struggling through this world and we are all suffering through it for the same reasons and we all have the same goal right? Which is that we want to be with God and we want to be in heaven. And we have the same enemy who is Satan, who is fighting all of us. This should be a common source of unity among us um, in the church. The last reason I'll mention is that God allowed them to go through the suffering is so that he could demonstrate two things. One, he could demonstrate his power because he brings them out of Egypt in a very dramatic way. Very dramatic. Like, more th the miracles that he does to bring them out of Egypt is like more dramatic than all the other miracles that he's done. There's going to be the plagues, very dramatic, affecting the whole country. You know, we're not talking about low-level miracles or, or, or miracles that are seen only by a few. An entire nation sees them, you know, and no one can deny them. And he does dramatic things like turning the Nile into blood. You know, like bringing darkness and locusts and frogs and like all these very dramatic visible signs so that he could what? Show that he can stop them. You know, he, uh, he brings them and then he stops them. And he brings another one and then he stops another one. And he keeps showing his power again and again and again.
The other thing he wanted them to see is not only that he was powerful, but that he loved them, right? He wasn't doing this for himself. He, he wasn't doing this for a selfish motive, and he didn't have to do it. He was doing it out of love for his people to show them that not only am I powerful, but I will use my power for your good, right? I will use my power for your good to do good to you. And this was something that the people didn't understand. You know, we, we, you know we're still a little ways away, but so the, when, when the Israelites are on the, sea, on the shore of the Red Sea and they're trapped and, and the Pharaoh and his army is coming to kill them, okay? So they are there and Moses is also there. When, when Pharaoh, when, sorry, the Israelites, they see Pharaoh coming, even though they had seen just the ten plagues and they saw the power of God, when they see Pharaoh coming, what do they say? You remember what they say? They think they're going to die, and they're like cursing Moses, and they're saying, w wouldn't it have been better if we just died in Egypt? Why did you bring us here to die? Like they have no faith that God is going to save them. But they just saw the plagues. I mean, they just saw all the power of God. But Moses' response was, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Both Moses and the Israelites understood that God was powerful, but the difference was that Moses saw that God was loving, that God did not want them to perish, that God would use his power for their protection. And that's the other thing God wants them to see, is he's doing all of this not as random arbitrary acts in order to demonstrate his power. He's doing this to show love to his people. And all of this had to do with forming the identity of the nation of Israel, right? Getting them out to be in their own land. Making them realize that God is powerful and God is their God and they're united together in one purpose and in one identity. All these things help to form the nation. It is not just a million people that just walk out and everyone does their own thing. No, it's a million people that are the people of God. A million people that all see God a certain way and understand him a certain way and feel like they have a certain responsibility toward him a certain way and that would all dwell together as a united people and not just as um, you know many individuals okay so there are many reasons why God would take this wicked act of Pharaoh and actually turn it into good for his people right um, for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his people yes Um, so I have, I have a comment and a question. So from what you you describe, and I, I'm pretty sure I'll just be summarizing what everybody said so far, but the the struggle of the Israelites, and I, not even not before I get to the struggle, I, I guess what you said about about God showing uh, the Israelites that uh, that the, uh, Egypt is worthless to them. Uh, it made me think about the idea of dying to the world that God allows us he, he sort of removes himself from us in a certain sense to allow us to see that sin sin is it, it, it produces nothing of value and so for, uh, through that he allows us to die to the world and to seek something greater right and in this way I guess as you mentioned earlier it this the story of of Exodus it parallels uh, our pursuit of the kingdom uh, of God, right? The kingdom of heaven, and it 
I, I just thought about like a personal spiritual struggle. You know, you, you can see that with the Israelites and how they, they, they follow God and suddenly they turn back, right? Because they think that the former things were better and the same way that we may be pursuing God, but then we may see, we may stop and think, or, or rather we just sin, right? We, we turn back to the pleasures uh, that we formerly uh, lost. Is that? That's 100%. That's exactly right. That's exactly what this is. And actually when the Lord speaks about this and he says what a dog returns to his own vomit. Yeah. You know, like we we become so attached to to the to the to the to the worst things and the things that really have no value and when God comes to offer us the best things, we're like no, I'm happy with this, you know? Or we try to take a step forward and then we come back to it again because this is our comfort, right? And that's exactly something that we learn from from the Israelites because this is a reflection of ourselves, exactly like you said. We are the Israelites, and the, the spiritual struggle that we have and the spiritual life that we have mirrors so much of what they experienced. So one of the beautiful things about this book is you can kind of take a step back and see yourself in it and see like the same things that we do are the same things that they do and try to learn from that and maybe try to stop doing that. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, question. Now, considering this and then the larger scheme of things, uh, because all of this is pointing towards Christ because Christ is comes to liberate us from the world, right? Why, why does it take so long? Why does, why does that, you know, this journey for the Israelites to get to the point of the New Testament? I guess that's a sort of side question but you know anything that we get easily we don't appreciate you know like if, if if god were just to take them magically from where they were and plop them into a new place that had everything already to go they wouldn't appreciate any of that they wouldn't appreciate they wouldn't learn the love of god they, they wouldn't they, they they would take for granted everything that they had you know i think we talked before about like the people who win the lottery uh, they go bankrupt so quickly because they never had to work for that money like they never had to feel like this actually was belonged to them because they had to struggle to get it, right? And the same is true with the spiritual life. You know, sometimes we wish and we pray, you know, God, just grant me all these virtues. Like I want to have all these virtues. Just give me the virtues. That's what I care about. That's what I want. And God doesn't give it to us in his wisdom because if he were to just give us all of these virtues suddenly, we, we, would, we would lose our minds, you know? We would fall into pride. We would judge others. We, we, we wouldn't understand our own nature to realize the amount of struggle that is necessary for the human to, to reach there, right? And how it is a spiritual victory, you know? Like the only way for us to achieve such virtue is through the Holy Spirit working on us, right? And not through our own strength. So if God were to grant in a moment all of these things, we wouldn't, we wouldn't understand any of those principles and we would believe, you know, that all of these things are according to our nature, which they're definitely not according to our nature. So one of the things that strengthens our faith in God is to see this struggle between the flesh and the spirit and how God can give us victories, right? But the victory is not necessarily unconditional and the victory isn't necessarily forever. Ultimately, yes, we have ultimate victory in heaven. But while we are still in the flesh, we remember that our enemy is active and we have to always be watchful and we have to always be alert and even when God doesn't give us all that we want, even when it comes to the spiritual things, right? 
there is wisdom behind it because he knows we couldn't handle it all at once. that uh, question is it true that the trip was only supposed to take 40 days but it took them 40 years because of all basically their mess missteps and mishaps yeah because at the beginning he took takes them directly there on the border right and then they send spies in right they send 12 spies to the promised land and only two of those spies come back with a positive report and 10 spies come say, oh, no, these people are too powerful for us. We can't defeat them, right? And so the whole people are afraid to go in. So they don't go in. So even that, the decision for them to keep wandering in the desert was their own decision, right? Because they didn't have faith that God would allow them to enter. So basically it took so long because they took so long. Yeah, because they were didn't want to listen to what God said. Yeah. Very good questions. Okay. Um, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was uh, Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife, do you guys know what a midwife is? She's the woman who gives birth to babies. Like she's like, she, she helps the woman deliver, okay? When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, you see them on the birth, and see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So why is he doing this? Because he wants to reduce the population of the Hebrews, okay? Because the, the, the slavery and the harsh treatment and all that is not doing anything. So he wants to reduce the population directly by killing them. And he's telling the midwives, you know, you are there when the baby is born, so you do this, you do this work, right? And specifically if it's a male, because the males are seen as being the threats the males are the ones who are the landowners. The males are the ones who have more power in the society, um, whereas the women, they didn't see them as being as much of a threat. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily, very mighty. So what is it the reason that they said? What is it that happened? He told the midwives to kill the male chi children. They didn't kill the male children. And then when Pharaoh asked them, why didn't you do it? What did, he, what did they say? The women, the, the birth was already done. Yeah, like they give birth so quickly that the midwife even hasn't had a chance to get there yet to give birth. And this was a lie, right? And then it says God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. So does this mean that God is happy with this lie that they told? Uh, no. This is something we've it's argued. No, I mean, not argued. Forgive me. That's not the wrong, that's the wrong term to use. This is something that we've talked about before. Mm. Uh, and if I remember correctly, um, this lie was accepted uh, because they meant they meant well in saving God's children. If I'm correct, yeah. So 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 God praised their intentions. Mm. He, he didn't he didn't praise the action, but he praised their intentions. Like they had a heart of mercy for God's people, 
they didn't want to commit a sin and, 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 and in following what Pharaoh commanded them to do. It doesn't mean that God approves of lying, but at the same time, God approved of their intention and what they wanted to do. Also, though, the Ten Commandments weren't weren't given to them yet, so I, I don't think they didn't really know that lying was bad then, correct? I mean, yes, the Ten Commandments were not given, but I would say that maybe just by the natural law, they would have known that lying is something that is against God. Actually, even from you know who who told the first lie? I mean, even even when um, when when Cain killed Abel, mm. right? And he tried to, and God asked him about him. He, you know, he, he didn't give a straight answer, right? Like, I mean, th there were lies throughout, and it was clear that God did not approve of lying. So, um, but, but here, he had mercy on them because they were trying to do something good, even if the means that they used to do something good were shady. Mm. Okay? Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. And so it was because the midwives fear God, that he provided households for them. Like God is even rewarding them because they did something. Like they had, they had, they had a heart of mercy and they, they didn't do what Pharaoh said. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Okay, so now because it's not working with the midwives, essentially any child, any male child, that's born, he is commanding that they now throw him in the river. Okay? That's the end of chapter 1. Any questions about chapter 1 before we go on to chapter 2? Yes. Um, <coughs> just going back to that point about the midwives, um, there's, uh, aside from the fact, yeah, whether it's a lie or, you know, it, we have a verse that says it's, it's better to obey God than to obey man right so what the midwives were doing was in accordance with God's commandment that you know you shall not kill so uh, as Abuna said uh, you know the intention is right that they are trying to obey God even if if what you know the means was like I like the word you, you used shady um, but yeah they're they're obeying God yeah. more than they're trying to obey man and and I think also that it's important to it's important to understand how g that God judges intention, right? And even when you talk about judging intention, you can speak about there's more than one kind of lie. For instance, there's a lie that I lie in order to protect someone, and then there's a lie that I lie to protect myself, right? If I've done something wrong, okay, and then I try to cover it up by lying, that's very condemned. But if I am trying to save someone, and while I'm in that moment, I can't think of another way to save them other than to lie. Again, I'm not saying that the lie is good. But my intention is to protect. My intention is to do good, right? Not to cover a sin that is mine. So I would think that God would, would see those differently, right? Because God is, not, God is not looking at just the act. He's looking at why we did the act. And that's true for any sin, right? So yes, it is a sin, but it is a sin that is offered with the noblest intention. Okay. And the man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Okay, so who's, who's Levi? What? 
One of the twelve uh, uh, sons of Israel. One of the twelve sons of Israel, and is Levi alive right now? He's not alive, right? Remember, we said that the nation of Israel is according to tribe, and so people affiliated with their tribe. So Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. He hit, so Levi was one of the tribes of Israel, and so people would be born according to a certain tribe. Like if they were born, if their ancestor was Levi, they are of the tribe of Levi. Okay, so a man and a and a woman of Levi married so the woman conceived and bore a son and when she saw that he was a beautiful child she hid him three months she's hiding him because she knows that Pharaoh is going to want to kill him because he's a male child but when she could no longer hide him she took an ark of bulrushes bulrushes are like reeds um, and daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank so she made like a little ark like a little, a little small little boat for him. She put him in it, and she l left him in the river. Okay. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. So Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby there. The family of the child are not nearby so there's no affiliation between them and so pharaoh's daughter she just finds this baby and when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby wept so she had compassion on him and said this is one of the hebrews children then his sister said to pharaoh's daughter shall i go and call a nurse for you from among the from the hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you what is she doing yeah, she's being very tricky very smart child. But this is good shady. Right? Who is the sister? What's her name? Miriam. So she is like standing away. She sees this happening. She's like, oh, I can get a nurse. I know a nurse for you. Of course, she didn't tell her that it was the mom of the baby, her mom. Right? She just said, oh, we'll get a nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Okay. Um, what is the significance of this? Why is it important that this happened? So he wasn't raised from infancy by the Egyptians so that what? So he knew who he was, and he knew the God that he believed in and his family believed in. He knew his identity because this was going to shape everything else that Moses does in his life. If he simply was born as a no-name Hebrew child that grew up among the pharaohs, right, but didn't know who he was, didn't have any understanding, didn't have any connection with his family, right, maybe his life would have been very different. But God arranged it so that so that Moses would have some kind of connection to the throne in the sense that he was living in the house of Pharaoh while at the same time knowing who he was, okay, and understanding that he was a Hebrew man, okay, and believes in the God of the Hebrews. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So... Some people, so what is strange about this, okay? Um, 
the, the some people say question why is it that Pharaoh's daughter would give the child a Hebrew name? Okay. Is it? Yeah, so in Hebrew, this is what it means in Hebrew. Okay. Um and different people have different explanations about this. Okay. Um Josephus, he is a uh, a Jewish historian, okay? And he wrote this. He wrote um thir uh Thermuthis, which is the name that he gives to Pharaoh's daughter. So he names her by name, Thermuthis. Imposed this name, Moses, upon him from what had happened when he, when he was put into the river. For the Egyptians call water by the name of Mo, and such are saved out of it by the name of Usis. So by putting these two words together, they imposed this name upon him, Moses. Okay, so according, because there's there's a debate about this, Right. Why is it that Pharaoh's daughter would name him Moses? Where this is the name, this is the meaning of Moses in Hebrew. He says, because I drew him, like to draw out of water. This is the, the, the Hebrew word. And so they said, why would she give him a Hebrew name? And so according to what he's saying, is that this is actually is a name that also would be in the Egyptian language. Mo and Usis. Okay. Um, there were there were there were other explanations that honestly I, I wasn't very like convinced of them. So I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So now he sees what that this Hebrew that's being beaten by an Egyptian, remember, because they were slaves, is one of his brethren. He feels like a connection with him. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, how old is Moses at this time? Forty. Forty years old. Okay, so he's had a life. You know, he's not a child at this point, right? Um, and he had this sense of identity that he was a Hebrew and this brethren of his was also Hebrew. Okay, why did Moses do this? Because he thinks he can save his people. And how do we know that? How do we know that Moses felt that it was his responsibility to save the people? He's probably the only male from his generation. From his mom? Well, how does his mom know that he's supposed to save the people? He was like a Hebrew, just like all the other Hebrews. Like he's the only... Like it yeah. He's honorary. <laughs> we are we are all honorary Egyptians. <laughs> 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 he's, he's like the only lucky male from his generation like that survived the the massacre like and he's like he like So he he's definitely he special he because he got protected, mm -hmm. right? Because no one could touch him because he was in Pharaoh's house, yes. But how do you make that connection and say okay, so we know that he was trying to save the people? The Bible actually tells us. But where does it say it? No. No, not in Hebrews. In a different book. Acts? In Acts. I, in, I, if you remember, St. Stephen, before he is stoned, he gives like this long speech, right? And so, and so he's, he's recalling all of the, essentially the bad things that the Jewish people have done throughout history. 
and how they have rejected the prophets and how they have done all this stuff. So one of the things that he mentions in the speech, this is in Acts 7, verse 25, speaking about Moses. And he says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So there's several things happening here. Number one, Moses understood that God had this plan for him. How exactly he knew that, we don't know. How exactly did Moses understand that God was planning to use him to liberate the people? It's not clear, okay? And he, Moses, believed when he did this, Moses believed that this was going to be the beginning of like a rebellion, right? He, he was there for, wait, he was, he was 40 years now, and he was thinking he already knew that God was going to use him to liberate the people, and so for whatever reason, he felt like now is the time, and I'm going to essentially begin. And I'm going to do something like as a protector, as a defender, as, a, as someone who is going to save the people, hoping that now maybe other people are also going to, you know, join this movement, jo join this rebellion. He didn't do this because God told him to do it. He didn't pray and ask God whether this was the appropriate thing to do. He just felt in this moment that this was the appropriate thing to do. And so he went and he killed the Egyptian who was hurting what one of his Hebrew brethren, because he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Okay? So this is very important understanding the story of Moses and understanding what he did. And it says something about Moses' character at this point, because remember at the beginning I said in the book of Exodus we see a lot of transformation, right? Transformation of the nation, transformation of Moses. Moses, at this time, he was a very kind of a haughty person. He was a very uh, self-willed person, and he believed that like, he was going to act on his own and start this rebellion. Okay, But what happened? And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Again, he is like taking the role of like a shepherd. He's trying to bring reconciliation between his people why are we fighting with one another okay again thinking in his mind that his people identify him as being kind of like a savior role right after all he is moses the one who is living in the palace you know he is moses well known among the people he is moses unique in all these different ways and that god has told me that i'm going to liberate the people so he see, he feels himself having this role but when he goes and he says to them, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So it's like everything turned south on him. Like this isn't the reaction that he wanted. He didn't want the people to see. He wanted the people to accept him as like a leader, you know, as someone who is going to lead them out of Egypt. But they're not seeing him like that overall. They're like rejecting him. They're rejecting. And now that, that he realized that other people knew about what he did the previous day, which is to kill the Egyptian. It says what? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. So again, maybe in the mind of Moses, Moses had a lot of clout and power and authority and influence, but clearly not. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So in just a few verses the life of Moses changes dramatically. So now what do you think Moses is thinking? 
You know, if, if before he felt like, well, I suppose everyone realizes that I'm the one who's going to liberate the people. So now he killed the Egyptian. He fled for his life. He's going to now live in, in the desert as a shepherd for 40 years without going back to Egypt for those 40 years. How do you think he feels now? He's out. That's it. And I, I messed it up. You know, maybe God wanted me to be the liberator, all this stuff, but I can't do it. It didn't work, you know, for what and, and maybe to a large extent blaming himself. Like, okay, like, uh, what do you think? Moses, and one of the things we see is a very big transformation in the Moses, is that in this phase of Moses' life, he felt like he could take things by force, right? He felt by the power, by power, he will he liberate. By power, he's going to do the will of God. But certainly we know that at the, by the time that Moses ends up coming back, he's how old? 80 years old. He's like an old man. He doesn't have power. And actually when it's time for him to come back and God is talking to him through the burning bush, Moses is trying every which way to avoid it. He's like, no, don't send me. I can't do it. I can't talk. I can't do this. I can't do that. He's a very different person in the sense of how he sees himself. Right At this stage of his life, he saw himself as a young, powerful man who, who was able to do and work and accomplish and succeed. And at when he's 80 years old, he sees himself as the opposite. I see myself as an old, feeble man who can't speak and no one's going to listen to. And I don't even have any reputation anymore in Egypt. Like maybe 40 years ago, people knew who I was. Do you think people know who about who I am now? Nobody knows who I am now. Right? And you want me to go now when I have no influence, when I have no power, when I have no energy, when I have no tongue to speak, and now you want me to go? And this says, again, something about the way that God works. If we think that it is in our strength to accomplish and do, maybe it will fail the way that it failed with Moses. But if we believe that actually it is the God is the one who is working, and maybe God will wait for the time where it is clear that we are, gonna, that we are unable to accomplish on our own to give us the success, because then we know that it is not us. You know, like even the way the Israelites, remember now, we said that when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they became a nation, right? But in what way did they become a nation? Did they become a nation because they were militarily powerful? Or did they become a nation because they had a clever scheme? Or they had, you know, experienced generals? Or no, they didn't do any of that. They became a nation and they survived leaving Egypt simply because God did the most amazing miracle to part the sea so they could pass through. They didn't, they didn't achieve because of themselves. They, they were 100% relying on God from beginning to end, and there was not, nothing that they contributed at all to this other than just stubbornly doing what God said to do stubbornly. Like, they weren't even excited about it, okay? The thing that we don't, the thing that about Moses that didn't change from when he was 40 to when he was 80, at least at the beginning, is his view of what was necessary for success. What do I mean? When he was young, he thought, he, he, he looked at himself and he said, I'm strong and I can do it and I can defend my people and so I will try and I will do it. And so he failed. He relied on himself and he failed. When he's 80 years old, he is still looking at himself, except now instead of seeing a strong man, he sees a weak man. And so he's concluding that I can't do it because he's still thinking that he is, you know, he, he is what matters. Like, his ability is what matters and not the ability of God. 
So even though he transformed in the sense that, you know, he went from being young and powerful to being old and feeble, right? But the thing that stuck with him is the idea that God is relying on my ability, okay? And this is something important for us to understand this concept because if we believe that everything we do is up to ourselves, then either, either I will fail or if I succeed, I won't give glory to God, okay? But if I see myself, regardless of what gift God has given me, regardless of what talent, regardless of what ability, regardless of what reputation I have in any way, but that I see in the end all of this source of all of the good things I have is from God, then God will bring me success, right? I will not attribute to myself anything. I am not successful because of myself. I am successful because God has granted me success, because God has given me favor in the eyes of people, because God has given me a mind to think, because God has given me the circumstances necessary for me to win in whatever winning means, right? So this is a very important thing, and we will see Moses change in this after, you know, fr from the time that God calls him to, to, you know, at the burning bush to later on when he is now the arch prophet in the desert leading millions of people, he continues to change. And this is a beautiful thing about the character of Moses and a beautiful thing about the book of Exodus is, as I said, this transformation. We are not static. We are not the same. The person that you are today is not the same person you were five years ago and is not the same person you will be five years from now. Our role in this is to decide whether we are changing for the positive or changing for the negative. I can't jump ahead. I can't, force, I can't force myself to be what God intends me to be 10 years from now. I can't be that today. Maybe I want to be that today. Maybe I really want to be that today, but I can't be that today. All I can do is make positive decisions, small decisions, small positive decisions every day to spend time with God, to read the word of God, to take communion, to forgive my enemy, to confess my sins. Those small little things, day after day after day after day, is what sanctify me right, and make me to be transformed as Moses transformed, to, to rely on God more and more and more. So here, Moses now flees, and he is there in this foreign land of Midian, and he is sitting there by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came, this is not, this is a pagan priest, he's a pagan, okay, he had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock, then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flock. So he's helping these girls of this priest. When they came to Ruel, Ruel is the name of their father. Also, his name is Jethro. Um, he goes by both names. Sometimes it calls him Jethro, sometimes Ruel. He said, how is it that you have come so soon today? So his fa this their father says, usually when you go out to get the water, it takes you longer. How come you came so fast today? And they said, what? An Egyptian, Moses, delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, Where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. So see, like this is now his new life. Like this isn't just like a visit. I mean, he is completely left his old life, left the palace, left the other Hebrews, left the Egyptians, left his place of living, left his culture, left everything, right? To now, th and think about what this is happening in his mind. Like, if he believed that God had chosen me to liberate the people, I have totally messed this up. 
You know, I am now living among pagans. I married a pagan woman. I'm working as a shepherd in the desert, right? That was not the life choices. That was not the, the expectation that I had even just a few months ago. That wasn't what I was in my mind at all. Like God took his, his, you know, his lofty expectations and goals and he crushed them, you know? And, and maybe we experience this sometimes where the thing that we really wanted or the, things that w- the thing that we think we were meant to be or the, 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 the circumstances of life that we were targeting and, and we, we, we had our hopes set so high about these things and then God takes those things and he crushes them, completely crushed, you know, and what appears and feels to us as though it is cruel, you know, as though it is, it is without compassion, without any feeling like, God, if you love me, how would you crush me? So like complete crushed. There's nothing here that was compassionate, you know, in the way that this happened. And it happened so suddenly, right? And it happened maybe when Moses was even had the best of intentions. Sure, he didn't do it the right way, but he had a good intention, you know? And yet God allowed him this. But we know, because we know the story of Moses is not over, right? We know what God is still preparing Moses for, that he was preparing Moses to do exactly what Moses knew that he should be doing, but the path to get there was completely different path than what Moses thought that it was. Completely different. You know, we, we usually think of direct route. You know, what is the fastest way to get to my destination? But maybe God knows that the fastest way is, 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 is going to fail. You, you, you can't get there this way. This, this path that we see, this is a failure path. We don't know that. We don't see that. We don't understand that. So God says, no, this, this path is not going to work. How about we go this other path way around this way, around back this way. And because we don't understand ourselves and we don't understand the obstacles and we don't understand even what our goal really is, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to me. Why, why, why are we going this way? Just go this way. Have you ever been like driving with someone and they're driving and, you know, you know the fastest way to get somewhere and they're driving all kind of other weird way and you get frustrated? You know, it's like, no, you turn left here, turn right, you know, and you start to... This is what we do with God. We tell him, this is not the way. This is not the path that I'm supposed to go, right, to get there. And But yet God knows the path. He knows the path that will work. He knows the path that will ultimately get us to where we want, even if it takes longer, because maybe the path we have envisioned is, is a failure from the start. And it's definitely, there's, there's, there's construction along the way. We're not going to get there, okay? So here, this is actually, God did not abandon Moses by any means. And this idea of the crush that happened to him, it was not an abandonment. Maybe it felt like it, and maybe Moses never imagined ever that he would ever go back to Egypt again because there was nothing there for him. There was nothing for for him to do there, and he is now content in this new life that he has. But God was continuing to prepare him, even when Moses had no clue and no idea that this was happening, for another 40 years. Like double his life, forty ye- like forty years. Forty years, like that is an entire lifetime. For forty years, God says, "What? No, you're, I'm going to work on you for another forty years. This is what you need in order to be what I need you to be. You're not even close to where you need to be yet." Okay, so he has this this life now, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. 
Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So the people are groaning, the people are crying, the people are complaining, the people are supplicating God and asking him for salvation. And, and this also, uh, we see this um, pattern in Israel. Like if you read in the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges is about the people are not faithful to God, so God um, sends them some kind of conqueror to conquer them, and the conditions become very bad. And so then they cry out to God asking for mercy, um, and then they repent, and God saves them. And they live good for a little while, and then again they fall into sin again. And then God sends them another conqueror. And then they live in bad conditions. And then they get so bad that they ask God for mercy again and repent. And then the whole process repeats, repeats, repeats. And maybe we see that in ourselves. Like when is it that we pray the most? It's typically when things aren't going the best. That's typically when we pray. When I call out to God the most, when I'm under the most stress, when I'm the most upset, when something is the worst for me. And so here the people are, are calling out to God. And so out of the abundance of their prayers, it says, so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. What is the significance of saying God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob? Why does it say that? It's a promise of what? What is the promise? Yeah, the, the, the covenant that God made with Abraham was that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky and that he would be a mighty nation, right? So it is not saying here that somehow God had forgotten and maybe now he is remembering, but this is all part of the plan. The timing, everything, the timing is all part of God's plan and he never forgot his people. And even though he let them to live there for a long time and yet he was waiting for the appropriate time and now the appropriate time had come. So you see how God was preparing the Israelites and God was preparing Moses and God was preparing Pharaoh and God was preparing everything, you know? And we're talking about time spans of hundreds of years that this preparation was happening. This wasn't just like something he cobbled together, right? This is the way God works. He works dramatically in every angle, in every way, with everyone, so that somehow there is some kind of unified plan to where everything is going to work out the way that God wants it to work out. And so now, starting from the next chapter, we're going to see how God is now going to start executing on this plan of salvation for the Israelites that are now suffering in Egypt as slaves, and while at the same time, in parallel, he's been preparing Moses for the very task that Moses thinks and believes that now he has... He has lost, like he can't do it anymore. God is still going to use him. Any questions or comments? Uh, I'm going to question. So in the introduction, so, so, so is it true that, um, is it true that Moses was the one that wrote the book? So we believe that Moses wrote the book. There's some more like modern critical Bible scholars that will argue whether Moses was the one who wrote these or not, but we, we believe that it's Moses. Okay. Yeah. Yes, John. Wrote that Moses was the most humble man on all the earth. 
not all of it was written by Moses. For instance, in the uh, the, the the book of Exodus, uh, uh, wait, is it Exodus? Which book? That no, it's, it's uh, what Deuteronomy that writes about the death of Moses. That, that was that Joshua. I, yeah. So I mean, not not every l- word was written by Moses, but the majority was written by Moses. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yes. Regarding that, I'd I'd read that the uh, scribes would later on clarify certain things like with tradition mm-hmm. like with time that i mean i can't say that i i know exactly the details of how the authorship happened and you know what changes were made and what time and how um but i know that we believe that the majority of it was written by moses through revelation all of it was revelation right because you know nobody was around at the time of the creation in order for him to write down how the creation happened and what happened with adam and eve and all of that so a lot of it was a revelation from God to him that he would record. Um, but the final state of the book as we received it now, it might have had some edits and things like that. Yeah. Oh, so I got my question. Um, it's back to the birth of Moses like, and how he ended up being uh, raised uh, in, the in, the p- in the palace of Pharaoh. It's like I read about, uh, about it in, like in, some, in some parenting book, like how it's like how uh, like it's like how like God uh, gives the parents like their children, and then like it's actually like and like it's symbolism. It's like it's a fair daughter. It's like God. Okay, He's the one who gives us children, and like he, it's His children, but we're raising them as if they are ours, our own. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, God, we are the stewards of the children that God gives us to raise. And we are called to raise them according to God's precepts and not, not to our own. Uh, yeah. Any other? Yes. Sorry. Um, just last comment on my part. I'm, I'm really intrigued because uh, like, I hadn't really thought about the life of Moses this way at all. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued to see where, like, uh, like what the change, where it comes about, because, you know, I, w- I was thinking initially, okay, so when he loses everything, that's when he'll uh, begin to be humble, right? But then you clarified and said, no, but he's still self-dependent now. Now he's lost everything, but he, he's like, all right, you know, I lost everything. Uh, you know, it's my fault. God, and it, 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 it reflects that he thought it was all about him, right? That he was the one to do the saving, as you said. So it, it, it became clear that just because you lose everything doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be humble now. So I, I wonder at what point does he find the humility if he does. So, th- so I can't say that there's like a one event that happens and then suddenly he changes. But if you look at throughout the 10 plagues, if you look at who, like at the beginning, Moses is still kind of stubborn. Actually, when, 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 when Moses first goes and talks to Pharaoh the first time, because God told him, go let, tell him, let my people go. And so Moses walks into Pharaoh and he's like, let my people go. And he's laughed at. And Pharaoh increases the work on the people, right? And so Moses, in his frustration, he tells God, why have you sent me here? It would have been better for me not to have come at all. Because all I did was the people are now having even more work to do, right? So even at, at the beginning, he had he, he had like this mentality, like he wasn't really, hadn't really surrendered the situation to God, and he still saw himself as being like, like, like he wasn't understanding, and he still felt like, like he didn't trust that what God knew what he was doing. 
But at the time, and I mentioned this when they were on the shore of the Red Sea and all the people were cursing and saying that they were going to die. And Moses is the one who said, what, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. There you can really see a change in what happened to Moses throughout that period of time of him seeing the 10 plagues and seeing how is it that God works. And he felt a sense of surrender. I he, d he saw himself, I am not the savior and I cannot save myself. But in the end, just wait and see God's salvation, right? And even after they they went into the wilderness, okay, you continue to see how Moses continued to change, right? There were periods of time where Moses was grumbling against God because God gave him all these many people and they were such a such a, 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 a stubborn people and how, how it was so difficult to lead them. And then later on, you see that God himself was so frustrated and angry with the people that he told Moses that I'm going to wipe out all of these people and strike their names from the book of life. And I'm going to raise up a new people for you. This is what he said. I'm going to raise up a new people for you to lead, for you to lead that are easier to deal with than these people. These are the same people that Moses was grumbling about before. But what was the response of Moses? He said, if you blot out their names from the book of life, also blot out my name from the book of life. And he interceded for them so that God saved those millions of people, right? And that is really when Moses became the true shepherd, right? So just as in our lives, there isn't an event that once that event happens, now suddenly we've changed. It's a process. And even as Moses became more sanctified and more sanctified and he changed more and more, that process didn't end, you know? And it's not like, okay, now when he was at the Red Sea, now suddenly that was like his final state where he was going to be. No, he continued to grow. So this is the beauty of the work of, of the Holy Spirit in us, is that there is no limit, you know. God continues to work in us, but we have to be receptive to his work. Because if we are standing against his work and not, um, you know, not cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit or quenching the work of the Holy Spirit, then we won't see this kind of a progress but the progress happens over long periods of time. Thank you. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and for those gathered here, O Lord, in your name. We thank you, O God, because you have given us the testimony of many of the writers of your scripture, that tell us, O Lord, about the way that you have worked with us as your children throughout history, that we would understand your ways and understand your mind, and that we would see your mercy and your patience with us. We ask you, O Lord, to transform us the way that you transformed Moses throughout his life, and that we ask, O God, that you treat us, O Lord, as the clay and the potter's vessel, that you are molding us as the potter into being whatever it is that you want us to be. Strengthen us, O Lord, and grant us your peace in all things, and let us to be pleasing to you, O Lord. Forgive us our sins, have mercy on our weakness. Teach us your ways, O Lord, and let us to remain strong and stand true for the right faith, that while we are surrounded by the darkness that is in the world, that it would not overcome us, and yet we would remain, O Lord, faithful to you at all times, even till the very end. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hears as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit. <laughs>